It's like dreaming awake, you know, which is what uh, Pauline Kael says movies are about anyway. They're, they're dreaming awake. You go in there and you have this dream. It plays out in front of you. And the horror movie, it always has seemed to me, is almost like the distillation of what that experience is supposed to be. It's the perfect awake dream. And when it's done well, you believe it. And when you come out, paradoxically, instead of feeling more afraid, you feel like you got rid of something you, you had to get rid of. He dreams awake and creates perfect awake nightmares. Italian director Dario Argento shows us two examples and a sampling of his techniques. Meanwhile, American producer Brian Usner takes the unbelievable to outrageous extremes in his films inspired by the stories of H.P. Lovecraft and Mary Shelley. The Crystal Plumage, The Cat O' Nine Tales, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, Deep Red, Unseen, Creepers, Opera, Suspiria, Inferno, and Two Evil Eyes, shot in America with the creator of Night of the Living Dead. His name is Argento. Dario Argento. He is the Italian master of horror, laughing at the conventional rules of filmmaking with unconventional camera moves and illogical story structures. His films are sweet experiences of complete madness and unrelenting terror. As a movie critic for an Italian newspaper, Argento fell in love with American horror films. His stylish use of color, movement, and music has made him one of the most influential horror directors to ever step behind a camera. Even some of his distributors consider his films dangerous, and they take liberties in cutting them. But he has an even worse enemy. No, in the sense of also, um, no, no, I am uh, disgusting by the sense of, no, no. Because also, I am disgusted by people have, uh, he says, I become sense. Why? Like I become a cut head. This, I, this is my, I love this. Why I love this? This is, this is the worst things in life. In the, I think now, the worst things to be censored. The, really uh, disgusting people.
in the in the hell if i am i'm dante alighieri in the bottom of the hell uh, no uh, luciferus but the censorship and uh, the chief of the distribution the major company cut the picture this is the deep <laughs> red <laughs> I think um, horror is bi biological, terror is psychological. If you're going to do a thriller or you're going to do terror, it's all up here, it's, it's psycho. But horror is when you see the flesh. In 1985, Brian Usna released Reanimator upon the world. Things have never been quite the same. The carefully measured elements of spectacular horror combined with maddening humor have made Reanimator one of the most popular horror films ever unleashed upon an audience. The Mad Doctor theme was taken by Usna and director Stuart Gordon from a short story by H.P. Lovecraft. They turned it into a statement on going too far. Four years later, Usna set out to prove that too much is not enough by directing Bride of Reanimator. Yes. I've never done whole parts. Herbert West. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You? It's true that <clears throat> Reanimator had this over the top black comedic element from the very start, which was part of what made it so, so um, successful. I, be I believe where that comes from, and I know where it came from in the making of the movie, was very early on, I was very concerned that as the producer of it and as being financially at risk, I was very concerned that it, was, that it not be one of those low-budget movies that doesn't go far enough and just ends up being sort of mediocre and unremarkable. Un so Stuart Gordon and myself, uh, along with the effects people, and we're very concerned that it go as far as it can, that we absolutely make it very explicit so that no matter what, there was gonna, it was going to deliver. <laughs> 
I'm very disappointed in you. You steal the secret of life and death, and here you are, trysting with the bubble-headed co-ed. You're not even a second-rate scientist. Oh, Mr. West, I'm actually glad to see you. It saves me the trouble of having to send for you. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head get a job in a sideshow? I wonder why an intelligent young man like yourself should make such a foolish, fatal mistake of coming here to challenge me. Oh, I have a plan. So do. The whole idea of the creator turning away from his creation, which I think is what kind of existentialism is all about, is that we have this whole century in which <laughs> there's, you know, nobody believes in anything because the, it's kind of like God's decided that it stinks and he's <laughs> quit dealing with it. And um, I think that's what we, I think that's what we tried to do with the bride. You are making a big mistake. Do you believe that dead is dead, Dr. West? I don't know what you're talking about. I am talking about my wife. No. You, you can't go in here. Move. No. Move. How dare you judge my work? Work? Was my wife your work? Don't lay your guilt on me, Lieutenant. Your wife died of multiple contusions to the head. No. From a blunt instrument. Oh. Multiple blows she to the fell. head. Ha! She fell, did she? That was not my fault. Some directors of, of genre pictures are very successful at creating a feeling of fright and fear, and they don't. And, and that stuff usually doesn't depend on the special effects. I think the special effects are more for just pure delight. All right, Billy, the game's over. Society. Usner's directorial debut develops an ominous theme involving the evil that lurks among the rich and powerful. 
Don't drop by one of their parties unexpected, for they are not like the rest of us. And when the cream of society's crop are alone with each other, they are different, very different. Maybe everybody that's involved in making horror movies that are, you know, approaching or in middle age are, are all have a bad dose of arrested adolescence. Jennifer? Thank God. I've always enjoyed uh, monsters and, and I like to scare people, no question about that. But I also respond very strongly to the fantasy element. What better fantasy element to explore than the domain of female vampires? Three unusual and tantalizing examples are shown. Then we will meet a special effects wizard who makes fantasy come true, sometimes with the simplest of solutions. In 1896, Dracula was published. 26 years later, Nosferatu was released into film theaters. But once Bela Lugosi performed the lead role, the powerful image of the vampire was secured forever. Masculine, ageless, majestic, and overflowing with psychological and religious imagery. presents something very different from the male vampire. She becomes the woman every man wants, but knows he shouldn't touch.
The seductive Polish-born Ingrid Pitt was largely responsible for establishing the lore of the female vampire. The house that dripped blood presented Pitt with an unusual problem, convincing her film director that he himself was not a vampire. Nothing happened. I can't understand it. Wait a minute. This isn't my cloak. No. This one is. Can't I know? No. Don't put that on. You'll turn into a vampire. Tala. Tala, please. We loved your film so much. We wanted you to become one of us forever. Welcome to the club. Two years after her 1973 appearance in Playboy magazine, Anulka appeared with Marion Morris in Vampires, Daughters of Dracula. Though neither of these vampires had fangs, their victims died with a smile. It's almost too good to be true. Nothing's too good to be true. The only trouble is life's too short. And <laughs> 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 for you. Well, that's strange. What? My watch has stopped. Look. Huh? That's never happened before.
give you Katrina. In 1986, Grace Jones updated the female vampire in Vamp. Her vampire was like no other ever before seen on the screen, and yet she projected the same seductive quality. Modern horror films rely heavily upon the talent and imagination of special effects artists who take the spectacular and unbelievable and make it very real. On the outskirts of Hollywood lies XFX Studio, where special effects artist Steve Johnson designs the objects that nightmarish films are made of. Steve is part of the new breed of special effects artists who are enjoying a prominent role in today's horror entertainment industry. Once Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi commanded the horror audience's respect. Now it is the special effects artist who receives the praise. Right now the business is so crowded. Things have really changed, but even when I started first getting into it, if you don't always want to push further and always want to try out something new and approach it from a different angle, then you're not really going to have much of a fighting chance in the industry because there are so many people in this business and it's interesting because now it's a much more of a legitimate thing than when I first came out here. When I first came out here, uh, it was really nothing to do. I mean, 11 years ago, the, the state of the art of the, the public knowledge of this kind of stuff was practically non-existent. And so it was kind of a strange thing, and there weren't all that many people getting into it in that respect. I was lucky. But now there are monster magazines all over the place, television shows like this one. And kids across America can see it and point it to their parents and say, that's what I want to do for a living, and it's a legitimate thing now. I think people have gotten very sensitized or desensitized to effects. And in a way, it's not like an amazing thing. They don't, I mean, it's, it's amazing to them, of course, but they expect it now. I mean, I think when people go to a, a movie these days, more often than not, they feel cheated if they don't see something amazing in the film. It's like, where were the special effects? Like, you know, let's, let's go down the way and see another movie. I just wasted seven bucks and there wasn't a single effect in it. I think my favorite person would have to be Rob Bottin. Um, 
probably because he comes up with the wildest, most different ideas, and I think he chooses his projects very well, which is really important. He uh, is an excellent designer, and as I said before, pretty much these days, I feel, and this is a broad understatement, but I feel anyone can do the basics. So now how I judge people's talent or competency is in design. As I said before, I think that's really the only true art left in this business. And the, the, uh, the keys to all of the things that used to be secrets are in a hundred books these days and, and videos and anything. So it, now the art really shows through because people have to be good designers in order to stand out in this business. And I think Rob is an excellent designer. He's really good. He did Legend. Uh, of, I, well, actually, it was released as Legend and did the, the demon makeup on Tim Curry, which is one of the most beautiful designs I've ever seen makeup effects-wise. Perhaps the complexities and problems of modern society have caused audiences to demand increasingly sophisticated cinematic illusions. Special effects to shock, humble, and even outrage those that pay to see the films. I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, get to work on time. Uh, what? You came out of frame. Let's do that again. Real quick. Okay, it's okay. Oh, I'm hitting him in his hair. <laughs> this is a guy who builds a bat, expects me to hit an actor with it, but he can't take it with himself. Here's the effect right here on the hand. Bam. There's a chamber in it that's filled with blood. So when you, the idea is when you hit, it spatters blood. And it's supposedly soft. <laughs> <laughs> Enthusiasm is actually very, very important. Um, the market is probably pretty much flooded right now. I mean, as I said before, this is a legitimate thing, and uh, kids love it. I mean, it's, it's a real cool thing now, and, and so there's a lot of kids coming out here from all over wanting to do this, and there's a lot of work, obviously. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's working. It's coming together. Okay, what we have here is a mechanical understructure for a close-up head for a Cool Whip commercial that uh, my studio built uh, at the end of 1988. We, uh, it's for a Cool Whip commercial, it's a talking cow. Um, they wanted the face to articulate the words very, very well. Uh, a little bit better than Mr. Ed, so we built a mechanical cow for them. Um, we did two cows. We did a full body that could be seen with real cows, and then we did this one um, as an insert piece. Uh, the reason for that was we needed to get so much articulation into the face that it would have been very difficult for us to articulate the full body as well as we did this one. We had much more access. For Nightmare on Elm Street 4, what we handled was the death sequence of Freddy at the very end of the film. Um, I don't remember exactly how many. It involved probably 10 or 12 different effects, all on different scales. Um, the basic concept of the, of the sequence was that all of Freddy's victims from the past are getting back at him by punching their way out of his body from the inside out. So um, we approached it in a more surrealistic sense than a bloody sense. We had. Um, we wanted to give the impression more that these things, there were arms, legs, torsos, heads growing out of them rather than breaking out of them. We didn't really want to spill a lot of blood in this. Um, one reason being of, uh, because of fear of censorship. Uh, also, we thought it had a more fantastic uh, feel to it this way. This is um, obviously the biggest thing we did. It's um, a full scale. It's, it's probably about 18 feet tall from the groin to the top of the neck. Uh, Freddy body um, and we actually got actors and actresses in there to try to punch their way out of it um, and we intercut this with smaller models actually on Robert England um, the Freddy Krueger character and uh, they used a lot of smoke a lot of Dutch angles 
lot of moving cameras to uh, kind of conceal the fact that we were cutting between large and small scale props. And it worked out pretty well. It's more like a machine gun barrage of, um, of cuts in the final edit, and uh, I think it worked out pretty good. This is an effect that we designed actually for the, the one of the very last shots where a face grows out of uh, Robert England's face, Freddie's face. At the end of the film, his face actually divides, bifurcates into two faces. Um, so we had kind of a mechanical de device and a vacuum effect happening. Um, for a lot of reasons, the effect was cut from the film, um, as is often the case in this kind of stuff. There you can see the face forming. Um, we never really got it to a more finished stage than this. Um, in this um, version of it, um, we ended up simplifying the effect when we actually took it to set. Uh, they felt that it just probably didn't go along the, the same lines as the rest of the stuff we had done, so this one never made it. Disney approached me this summer um, about doing a mechanical spider, a blue screen puppet. Um, this is where a lot of times what we do works hand in hand with optical enhancement. Uh, we wanted to make this actually look like a real spider. Um, so in order to be able to operate it more easily, we built it about three times oversized. This actress, Lindsay Frost, um, comes to a point in the film when she deteriorates in front of camera. So we used several tricks. Um, one of them involved her arm falling off as she reaches out toward uh, the actor and Treat Williams in this case. This is again from Dead Heat. Um, this scene was eventually cut out of the film, um, but <laughs> It's a pretty funny scene. There's the, the, the big giant birthday cake gets wheeled in. It's Joe Piscopo's birthday, and uh, a dancing skeleton pops up out of it, eventually wore a nice, sexy bikini. And what we did here is we had um, an actress, it was Linnea Quigley, in this case, uh, wearing a black velvet suit shot against black uh, with direct attachments to movement points of the skeleton. Um, for instance, her head had a rod attached directly to a, a helmet that went directly into the back of the skull. So when she moved her head, the skeleton's head moved. Um, rods come out of the elbows of the skeleton, and she grabs onto the, the rods, which had the handles on them as well, to move the wrists. Uh, her hips have pivot points attached to the skeleton hips. So basically, all she had to do was dance in a very exaggerated manner, and the skeleton would dance as well. Caro syrup, thinned with a little bit of water, food coloring, not just red, though. You have to put a little bit of green and a little bit of yellow in there to give it that kind of brownish tint. I think it reads better on film, actually, and looks a little bit more visceral if it's not bright, bright red. If you prick your finger and look at it under bright light, it's pretty vibrant red, but I think it's a little bit more visceral and more gut-wrenching to see a little dark brown to it because that's the way it starts to look when it's coagulated, and I think somehow that triggers something in people's heads that makes them think it's a little more disgusting. And then you just need something that will make it a little more opaque. Uh, you could put baby powder in it if you suspend it and shake it up before you use it. Um, that's probably the easiest home recipe for blood, but don't put it on your pancakes, kids. Pump. What pump? Pump. 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 Pump.
But people are scared. Uh, and the response to that is, well, if people are scared, if they're afraid of what's going on in Lebanon, if they're afraid of what's going on in the economy, if they're afraid that, uh, you know, the Russians are going to nuke us or we're going to nuke the Russians, why do we need this, this stuff? And the answer is because we have to have some kind of symbolic way to deal with our fears, or we can't, or, or if there's no conduit for those things, they'll simply pile up and pile up and explode. In this episode, we visit the set of the notorious Texas Chainsaw Massacre series, where lunchtime is at 2 o'clock in the morning. Then we take a look at another Texas horror story, an example of modern film noir horror, Blood Simple. You're my fave. <laughs> Me and Bubba, my little brother, we listen to you every night. <laughs> Music is my life. <laughs> you know, you're my fave, but, but I get too embarrassed to phone in my request. It's too disembodied, you know? <laughs> but uh, uh, now that we're here in, in flesh and blood, I, I could maybe make a request and, and it'd still count, huh? <laughs> saw-wielding anti-hero of the landmark Texas Chainsaw Massacre film continued his bloody exploits in Texas Chainsaw 2. Again, we saw the trademark chase scenes and woman in jeopardy segments that were so gripping in the first movie. Now in production at Newhall Ranch in Valencia, California, is the latest installment in the Leatherface saga. Director Jeff Burr is overseeing the deliberate mayhem that will be Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think it's my third one, and uh, I, 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 I don't know. We spend a lot of time bloody. OK, there's the chainsaw, of course. And then there's uh, being nailed to a chair, stabbed, um, strangled, dragged, drowned, um, punched, those kind of things. <laughs> I think I can do without watching this. <laughs> oh, this way a little before you can in here. All right, Jeff's here we go, right away. Come on, guys, the up. I flipped a car off of a cliff. Uh, we've had numerous fights. We had a guy on fire. We've had a couple other car crashes and uh, a big fight in a pit full of bodies. This film, 
I'm treated like an animal, so the, the, the average American gets to see what it's like to be stalked and, and actually treated like, a, you know, cattle. It's literally what we're treated like in this film, so I think it has a nice message to it, uh, if you'd like to take it that way. If you're looking for a message, that's definitely it. I don't think I ever imagined ever doing a horror film. I never imagined it, in fact, because I'm not a horror fan. I was a dancer for a while, and then I studied mime with Marcel Marceau in Paris. We have fake rocks and things that have to look heavy. So I think that helped me a lot. The being dragged around and pushed down and knowing how to fall really helped me a lot because I didn't want them to use a stunt woman too much because it just, it's not the same thing. And knowing how to fall enabled me to do a lot of my stunts and stuff. This sequel to the original cult classic is designed to hit with the same visceral impact. For the actors, it is a wrenching experience to create the malicious bloodletting that is vintage Texas Chainsaw. The parts are physically demanding, and much of the filming is done at night. The actors and crew form bonds, much like a family, during the demanding film schedule. Their collective efforts are with one goal in mind, to depict the gruesome exploits of a demented family, the Chainsaw family. Horror films are, to me, one of the best genres because you can, you can really do anything you want with, without fear of reprisal. And studios will be going, well, it's a horror film, yeah, I guess it's okay, you know, because, because, because no, very few people really understand the genre and, and, and respect the genre. And so, so it's kind of like a renegade filmmaking. It was very uh, disturbing at first, you know, I was very, oh, this is just, this is hideous. But then, you know, after a time, frighteningly enough, you know, it's funny. The ugly visage of the hideous and powerful Leatherface takes painstaking work by the makeup department. The term Leatherface is appropriate for this killer who enjoys sporting the skin of his victims and hiding behind the mask of a corpse's hide. The thing I learned from studying the weaponry was that uh, in, in the ancient times, the, the warriors were one with their weapons, and so I've become one with my chainsaw. <laughs> You know, I mean, uh, I'm a perfectly normal guy, sort of, <laughs> off camera. But, uh, you know, once you get in front of the camera, you just, uh, it's acting. Basically what we're doing, Leatherface wears a mask that he's constructed of body parts or people's faces from people that he's killed. And the mouth area and the eye area is left open so because he's been skinned. So basically what we're simulating is skin that's been, um, obviously the eye area, the eyeball would fall out if it didn't have eyelids in the lip, the mouth would not be there if it wasn't for the lip area. It's, it, he was not skinned there. So what we do is we duplicate around the mouth eye and the eye area of the skin that's been peeled and dead. It's pretty much deteriorated. And we do it with latex, sheet latex and little different things put in there to make it kind of strong. This is the Leatherface manicure. This is real blood, R-E-E-L. But it rinses off really, really easily. Yeah. And we don't have any continuity problems then when he touches his wardrobe. He's been a busy boy, so he's pretty bloody at this point. Yeah, that's why my shirt is all. The challenge for the filmmakers in shooting Texas Chainsaw 3 is to match the realism of the original. The gripping vision of the first film made its title synonymous with horror. 
Any discussion of the horror film genre would be incomplete without Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In the sequels, an attempt is made to build on the Leatherface mythos, a fictional murderer who has become a firmly entrenched figure in terror cinema. Leatherface is nasty in spirit, looks, and demeanor. Nonetheless, this character has proven to be a major star, with audiences displaying a morbid fascination for him. The Texas Chainsaw films do not rely on extensive special effects for their particular appeal. It is the chilling actions of twisted human minds that give urgency and realism to these productions. You want more smoke out of the thing? He's got the thing right in his hand. Okay. It's slightly when you do it. There you go. Thank you. Got it looks lovely. Ready? How much murder and mayhem can the human mind take before one is driven blood simple? Blood Simple was written by two brothers, producer Ethan Cohen and director Joel Cohen. Their production met with plaudits as part art film, splatter film, murder film, and dark comedy film. The premise of this fine example of film noir is a murder, but a murder that takes plenty of turns for the bloody worst. Let's do it outside, in nature. We sat down to write the story. I think that the actual story was an attempt to write that kind of story that you see in those old novels and put it in a kind of modern film noir context. Joel and I are both interested in genre pictures and thrillers and 
uh, in general, we're, we're both big fans of sort of hard-boiled American fiction, sort of James M. Cain, uh, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler type, uh, usually private detective fiction. Chandler is probably the funniest, has the best sense of humor, and uh, Hammett is the most, I think, sort of the most interesting stylist in terms of writing. But Kane, I mean, Kane is sort of more of an influence on this, I think, if you want to like take it to that extent, just because we were after a story and a specific kind of story. He doesn't write mysteries, and Blood Simple's not a mystery. shoot the movie in black and white which was kind of an obvious way to go with this type of story but on the other hand we wanted a fairly monochromatic dark look to the picture so what we decided to do was introduce as color elements in the frame we wanted the color elements in the frame to be actual light sources as opposed to reflected light that's why there's a lot of neon in the movie blue bug lights that sort of thing so we could keep the frame fairly dark but still have it be colorful in a way that was film noir and its feeling. Dead. So, scene. The twist in the plot concerns a woman whose marriage crumbles after she begins an affair with an employee of her boorish husband. The cuckolded husband hires a disreputable detective to kill his wife and her boyfriend. But the detective has his own agenda and tries a double cross. Nah, I trust you. Cohen says a thread through the whole movie is the ever-deepening mess the male protagonist makes, such as trying to clean up blood from the murder with a non-absorbent windbreaker. And what follows is one of the longest set pieces in horror cinema, an agonizingly prolonged effort to dispose of a corpse. We came up with the idea of the main character coming and discovering the body and thinking that his lover has killed him having to dispose of the body. We liked taking a character that ordinarily would never kill anyone and put him in a situation where he mistakenly thinks that he doesn't have any choice and then just sort of see him work himself out of that hole. It's also an interesting sequence in that both of the characters in the, in the middle sequence are beyond talking to each other at that point. They're in it. There's no dialogue for about 20 minutes of the movie, and yet the, there's sort of continuing action and continuing story. character has this dilemma about actually how to kill the person and uh, finding each of the alternatives he attempts to repugnant and ultimately killing the person in the worst possible way. I'll be here with you till six this morning when Mike Miller will be stepping in.
Stuff, the, the worst thing about all this stuff is you, you sit and this sort of nasty grin surfaces on your face. People say, have you ever scared yourself? And once in a while I say, yeah, but mostly you just think about these things and you think, this is really great. Yeah, Marky Desaad time. And radiation. What's wrong with the pure enjoyment of a good scare or a good gross out? Here are the most elaborate invitations to enjoy just that with the ingenious previews created by well-known and lesser-known horror show creators. My idea about the audience is that you want to take them and say, hey, I'm your friend. Now come around the corner because I want to show you something and I think you'll really like it. And you get them around the corner in the dark where they can't get away and then you do a number on them. That's all. But they like it. Mostly. They come back. As far as marketing, all they really have to do, as far as I'm concerned, is put an ad in the paper and run a trailer on TV, and I'll be there. I'll go. <laughs> Death lives. Well, trailers are great. I mean, uh, I love 50s trailers. Because, you know, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, you ever seen the trailer of that? It's great. I mean, they're great stuff. They're great stuff. They're, they're um... They're an intensification, very often, of what's in the picture. And it has to be said, very often, all the best bits of the picture get put in the trailer. a normal, voluptuously beautiful woman. She drove into a nightmare of horror and saw descending from the sky a titanic monster whose fearsome touch became a frightful curse. What she saw was beyond belief until others, too, faced its hideous, uncontrollable menace. Attack of the 50-foot woman, incredibly huge, with incredible desires for love and vengeance. Below a certain level of excellence, a film needs to offer a little extra something to attract viewers to the box office. In this area of promotion, horror films have always been ingenious. 
the curse, the curse of the mummy's tomb and the Gorgon. He said the Gorgon, both in petrifying color, you know, they will frighten you. How can you protect yourself from the forces of evil? Now, disguise yourself from the menace of Rasputin, the mad mother. You will apologize for laughing at me. It was traditional for horror shows to come bearing gifts for the audience, whether in the form of plastic coins, magic seeds, insurance policies, or even this preposterous souvenir. Your only hope is to get your free Rasputin beard as you enter the theater to see Rasputin, the Mad Monk! Audience participation was a concept pioneered by the makers of horror films. Here, a fright break was promised to viewers of Homicidal. For the first time in screen history, a special interval will be provided during the running of this picture for refunding your admission. If you're unable to stand the almost unbearable suspense, the almost paralyzing shock of Homicidal, the producer, William Castle, had other tricks up his sleeve, always announced in his previews. For years, I have searched for a unique way whereby a motion picture audience can actually decide the climax of a picture. I have found such a way. My latest picture, Mr. Sardonicus, offers something no audience has ever had before, the power to determine the fate of a character on the screen. The power to punish. Mr. Sardonicus. His deeds form the fabric of nightmares. When you come to see Mr. Sardonicus, you will receive a, a ballad like this. At a certain point in the picture, you will vote thumbs up or thumbs down. His punishment will depend on the result of your vote. Ironically, the audience always voted thumbs down. But then William Castle never did produce a thumbs up version of the ending. He knew it would never be demanded. As if to punish the audience for their thirst for blood, Castle created The Tingler and announced his most famous movie gimmick. It involved the most direct form of audience participation imaginable and required $100,000 insurance on each audience member. Very simply, seats in the theater were wired, and at key points in the film, viewers got mild electric shocks. Today's previews carry on the tradition, especially at the low end of production. Troma Films, a leader of grade Z movies, are instantly recognized through their previews. Their fans want horror, and we asked why. It's part of life. It is life. Life is horrible. You get born, they beat you in the behind, they put you in a cold scale, then you people die all around you. you you wonder whether you're going to have enough food. The tax man comes. The rent is due. Life is horrible. I mean, 
right? I mean, there are a lot of nice things, too, but generally, it's pretty scary. Meet little Melvin. He's a 90-pound weakling. Everyone hated Melvin. I'm gonna take this mop and shove it down your throat. They teased him. I'm gonna do it with you. Okay. They taunted him. They tormented him until he had a horrifying accident and fell into a vat of nuclear waste. Transforming little Melvin into a hideously deformed creature of superhuman size and strength. Melvin became the Toxic Avenger. The first superhero born out of nuclear waste. Uh, in terms of subject matter, we get a lot of it out of the newspapers. Uh, the environmental problem was uh, Toxic Avenger. The class of Newcomb High dealt with the uh, nuclear power plant. Welcome to Tromaville High, an average American high school, with one exception. It's located only one mile away from a nuclear power plant. They said it was 100% safe. But they were wrong. There's no danger, Governor. We have the situation well in hand. <laughs> Welcome to the class of Newcomb High. Yes, at Newcomb High, strange things are happening. The Honor Society has changed from a group of clean-cut preppies into a vicious gang of cretins. We're the youth of today. The class of Newcomb High, where you'll learn the three R's. Reading. Frighten. And radiation. See the most explosive action of the year. We have a certain vision of life. We're interested in small town America, you know, typical American life. And our movies reflect our view of the American life as we see it. The most mysterious, inexplicable, and incredible events often take place in the most ordinary places. Usually, these seemingly unexplainable occurrences are eventually explained. But every so often, they remain mysteriously incredible. Monster in the closet. The president declares national emergency. Yes, it was something so hideous. So gruesome. So frightful. That it could only dwell in one place. Monster in the closet. It's coming out. We do have one foot in fairly uh, interesting themes, so that there's a little bit to chew on when you see a trauma movie. At least I believe so. Sometime in the near future, a major earthquake will lay waste to the entire California coastline. From out of the rubble will rise
implies a menace far more terrifying than the death and destruction. Surf Nazis. Welcome to California, where the beaches have become battlefields and the waves are a war zone. Only one person can ensure that surf Nazis must die. She's tough. I want to buy a gun. Taste some of Mama's home cooking. See the film that is creating a tidal wave of action all over the world. See Surf Nazis Must Die. Horror movies have been accused of everything, including pushing people to commit murder. But this is a welcome marketing opportunity for horror filmmakers. Consider this statement by Dr. William Bryan. In 1960, I was consulted regarding a tragic case of a triple murderer who strangled his victims immediately after viewing the movie Psycho. His fascinating analysis under hypnosis, now a matter of record in my book, came to the attention of the producers of Dementia 13 who asked me to devise a method of preventing a recurrence of this tragedy. You will now take the test prepared by Dr. Bryan to determine your ability to withstand shock. One wrong answer could mean you are a threat to your community. Have you ever spoken aloud to yourself in a mirror? Were you ever involved in what passed for an accident, but which you purposely caused? Did you ever do anything seriously wrong for which you felt absolutely no guilt? True or false? Death by drowning in a pond is best described as exciting. or false. The most effective way of settling a dispute is with one quick stroke of the axe to your adversary's head. I think we've all faced this at one time or another. There were supposedly copycat murders after Psycho. Um, my view about this sort of thing when it happens is that the people who did it should not only be put in jail for having committed crimes but should be sued for plagiarism. Um, the fact is a crazy person is going to do crazy things and it may be that he'll get the idea to do those crazy things from a film like Taxi Driver or Carrie or Salem's Lot or Christine or some other thing. But I don't believe that either a creative artist or, or a society of, of people who appreciate art can be penalized for the few crazy people that are riding uh, along the fringes of the herd. If Psycho pushed someone to murder, the unindicted co-conspirator was Alfred Hitchcock. He was not only a master of terror, but also a master at drawing large crowds. I've suggested that Psycho be seen from the beginning. In fact, this is more than a suggestion. It is required. This requirement created captive audiences to Hitchcock's tape-recorded messages through loudspeakers before each show. I insist that you do not tell your friends the little, uh, tiny, horrifying secrets of Psycho after you see it. The plan worked, but Hitchcock's effort had actually started months earlier in what was to become a classic preview. In that window on the second floor, the single one in front, that's where the woman was first seen. 
Let's go inside. You see, even in daylight, this place still looks a bit sinister. Now, it was at the top of these stairs that the second murder took place. She came out of the door there and met the victim at the top. Of course, in a flash, there was the knife, and in no time, the victim tumbled and fell with a horrible crash. I think the bat broke immediately and hit the floor. It was it's difficult to describe the way that the, the, the twisting of the, of the, well, I, it's, uh, I won't dwell upon it, but let, let, come upstairs. Of course, the victim, or should I say victims, hadn't any conception as to the type of people they would be confronted with in this house, especially the woman. She was the weirdest and the most, well, well let's go into her bedroom. Here's the woman's room, still beautifully preserved. And the imprint of her figure on the bed where she used to lay. I think some of her clothes are still in this wardrobe. son's room but uh, we won't go in there because his favorite spot was the little parlor behind his office in the motel let's go down there this young man you had to feel sorry for him after all being dominated by an almost maniacal woman was enough to drive anyone to the extreme of uh, uh, well, let's go in. Well, I suppose you'd call this his hideaway. His hobby, as you see, was taxidermy. Crow here, an owl there. Now, an important scene took place in this room. There was a private supper here. And, uh, oh, by the way, this picture has great significance because uh, let's go along to cabin number one. I'll show you something there. All tied it up. bathroom. Well, they've cleaned all this up now. 
big difference. You should have seen the blood. The whole, the whole place was, well, it's, it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. And I'll tell you, there's a very important clue was found here. Down there. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here. Very slowly, of course, the shower was on, there was no sound. And
is how do people come to believe in the unbelievable? I mean, we do, and these supernatural things are always analogs for real things that we face in our own lives. For instance, it's very difficult for any of us to believe that we're going to croak, you know, that we're just going to fall over and then we're going to be dead forever. But we have to come to a belief in that unbelievable thing or else we can't, you know, live our lives with any sort of a goal, you know, with an idea that these things have an ending and that we won't always be doing tomorrow what we did today. The Nightmare on Elm Street series uses our own dream experience to make us believe in the unbelievable. We explore here why the illusion is so compelling. More and more, the illusion depends on the capabilities of the special effects designers. KNB Special Effects in Los Angeles shows us the tools of their trade. term, but something we intimately know because we've all experienced it to one degree or another. And the most common way we have slipped into the grips of icy terror is through our own dreams. Nightmares. One of the most popular horror figures in modern U.S. cinema capitalizes on those nasty nocturnal events. He is Freddy Krueger, the anti-hero of the long-running Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Freddy is everyone's worst bedtime encounter. But what motivates this character who has so captured the imagination of movie audiences that his saga has been told in five films to date? According to the storyline, Freddy, played by actor Robert Englund, is the obscene result of multiple attacks by inmates upon a woman trapped at an asylum. This bastard of a hundred maniacs grew up to be a kidnapper and murderer of teenagers. A travesty the parents of this fictional Elm Street in Springwood, USA, decided to halt when the courts would not. They burned Freddy, some say to death. And now he stalks their children through the youngsters' dreams. Freddy is truly a horrific sight, a wise-cracking demonic terror with his scarred, mottled face and signature glove with steel knives, a glove he likes to use with calculated effect. Not a particularly appetizing protagonist, yet the nightmare films have spawned a whole following for what has become the Freddy mythos. This celebrated figure stands apart from many of his horror brethren. Freddy has clout, despite the ample serving of mean-spirited slashing and gore that might lead some to dismiss the Nightmare series as just another glossy splatter movie. Splatter, the genre of films where a thematic plot functions simply as a vehicle for the real intent. Depiction of appalling and bloody acts of physical mutilation and psychological brutality. The Nightmare series focuses on horror, yes, but has attained recognition because it also offers cinematic substance. It deals with realistic life issues, and its theme of dreams as a door to a world beyond is a well-accepted facet of supernatural fiction.
Films have been said to tap profound adolescent fears, then exercise them. It's catharsis on the cheek. The first Nightmare on Elm Street movie deals with the themes of alcoholism and drugs and taking charge of one's life. Nancy, the heroine in the first film, is haunted by something monstrous in her dreams that wants to kill her. She finds her high school friends are having the same dream and are being systematically butchered. Nancy knows Freddy attacks during slumber and she refuses to sleep, refuses her girlfriend's urging to have some drugs. She takes responsibility for herself deals with painful truths and survives while others sleep and die. Filmmakers deal with sexual issues and the physical awakening of adolescence. As in the earlier film, it also deals with staring down one's vulnerability, the awareness that one's life can be changed unexpectedly and horribly at any moment. This one is aptly titled Freddy's Revenge. filming of Nightmare 3, a decision was made to make Freddy less scary and more the wisecracking anti-hero. Audiences grew even more after that. A strong point in the Nightmare movies is their championing of young persons, those ignored by their parents or ostracized by their peers, and the hope for their futures if they are strong in character and fortitude.
the sequels, Freddy moves to higher levels of evil and gains greater powers, as shown in this scene from Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Freddy is attacking the future of these teens, whom he menaces. Their metal and resourcefulness are tested. Creators of Freddy do not see any reason why this nightmare can't continue. There are messages in these movies, and more to deliver. Perhaps the best way to breathe continuing life into the series is unveiled in Nightmare 5, Son of Freddy. As they say, the nightmare continues. It's a boy! Today's horror films look more realistic than at any other time in the history of cinema. This is due in part to the growing talent of the special effects artists. Using exotic plastics, fiberglass, and latex foam, special effects artists take images that could only exist in the mind and bring them to life. Their talent lies in the ability to take those things that are hiding under the bed or lurking in the shadows and bring them out into the open for us to see. At the KNB Effects Group Studio in Los Angeles, breathing life into our darkest fears is the order of the day, every day. Made up of Robert Kurtzman, Greg Nicotero, and Howard Berger, KNB has a nine-person staff working around the clock on some of today's most popular horror films. Watch closely. These men want to scare you. On this side of the shop is uh, where we do all the mechanical um, things that make our, our creatures come to life. What this does here is it's, it's a slave unit that uh, reproduces his jaw movement, translates it to the movement of the puppet, so the puppet duplicates his exact movement. Basically, the radio unit is hobbyist RC radio equipment and placed in their own boxes, so it makes it easy for our fingers to work eight different controls at one time. Don't forget, it's only a movie. In front of the camera, these puppets come to life. What you don't see on screen is the mechanical tools that make them move. For Bride of Reanimator, KNB designed a glove that slips over the assistant's arm. Whenever the director wants, the head can pull away from the body. For Horror Show, a puppet was built for an electrocution scene wire all those detonators up to a, a charge box and the special effects guy would hit the detonator and sparks and fire shoot out of his face and everything. A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5 demanded something a bit more surreal. From this stage we go to this stage, um, the heads swing around and hit the camera and when we pull back out 
it's a different head every time. And this, at this point, Freddy has stretched out of Alice's face, and their tongues are connected, and all their flesh is connected. This is the last stage then, um, where Freddy is actually uh, just about ready to snap out of Alice's face. And when he does, they change, she changes back to Alice, and he changes into Freddy. This is for a film called Intruder. Um, Scotty Spiegel, who co-wrote Evil Dead 2, uh, is his first directing project. This is a head that we, we actually cut on a bandsaw and throw the actor down, and then we cut to this. And there was a camera mounted above and on the side, and we'd push it across, and it was filled with um, big blood bags. So blood and meat started going up the side of the, the blade, and it was pretty messy. This is the, actually the head before we cut it in half. Each face, which is cast for a puppet, has its own space on the wall. Lance Henriksen, who plays Detective Lucas McCarthy, is having dinner with his family. He's being plagued by hallucinations by this serial killer, Max Jenke. So he's having his big turkey dinner with his family, and he looks down, and suddenly the turkey is not a normal turkey anymore, but it's this weird mutated thing. So what we did was we sculpted it so that the killer's face was growing out of the side of the turkey. The whole thing could breathe, had little air bladders in it, it could talk. Um, one of the turkey legs actually had human fingers on one, and we also had a, uh, a bunch of tentacles that came out. Night Angel, which as far as I understand, is all, name has been changed now to Deliver Us From Evil, directed by Dominique Girard, who I'd worked with on Halloween 5. We did Night Angel first. There's a sequence where this demon is born, and it, she takes the shape of a female, so they built this strange set where she was able to climb out of a hole in the ground. We covered her entire body. We, she had a, a hand prosthetic on, we covered her entire body with pieces of latex and, and hot melt vinyl to simulate a, a translucent kind of skin, like she's shedding her skin, and underneath is this, is this beautiful female. Mark? What we have here is there's another sequence in the same film where um, one of the characters is in bed with his girlfriend and he turns around and suddenly she has transformed into Lilith, this evil character, and all these snakes shoot out of her mouth and bite onto this guy's face. So um, Bob designed a makeup wh which were uh, uh, several prosthetics so that we could actually get be able to attach some fake snakes onto the guy's face and he could pull them and the skin would stretch. It was looked like they were actually biting into his face. Um, this was a very tricky sequence because there were a lot of camera tricks involved. We did a lot of reverse photography where you put the snake on his face, roll the cameras and pull it off and then when they flip the film backwards the thing comes, looks like it's coming down to bite him on the face. also had uh, um, oversized hand puppets that were like snakes 
that uh, we could do lunges at the camera with to intercut. We also did a, a dummy head of Lilith, which we could actually shoot the snakes out of her mouth. saw the shape he had burned back of the hand appliances on to uh, maintain continuity from the other films the other films he, he was burned in the end of part two and had been shot about 50,000 times stuff like that um, anyway with Dominique he always wanted to see tests so what we did was we had an extra head this we have a couple tests here you can see some they don't work quite well other times they do the blood tubing here is hooked on the instrument as the instrument goes in the blood is pumped, and it looks like it's coming out of the fake head when it's actually coming out of the instrument itself. Um, this was the, we were, you know, by the time we got it to this fourth test, we figured that we were pretty happy with it and got it to the point where um, the director saw it and was very pleased. And there it is, the art of terror, as described by the K&B special effects group. Here at the front office of their studio, producers and directors deliver the ideas which are turned into reality. Images from under the bed or lurking in the shadows brought into the light for us to see. And what nightmarish images could these possibly be? What fiendish demons are KNB preparing to unleash upon the world next time? things in a film uh, that break that break the mood entirely that make the idea of scaring anybody impossible even in the worst horror novels ever written there's no zipper running down the monster's back whereas in some of the American international pictures from the 50s you can see that zipper I mean you see a picture like the hideous Sun demon you know and you can see that guy's skin around the the reptile face when the giant praying mantis in the deadly mantis knocks over a bus in New York, you see the word Tonka written across the bottom. Of course, today, the answer is that with enough money, any special effect is possible. But two producers, each a self-made mogul, demonstrate that large budgets are not at all necessary. Horror is alive and well in Hollywood, even if you must produce on a shoestring budget. Jack Death. I'm a trooper in the 23rd century. Jack Death, Angel City PD. May I see your stats? What did I do? Under Section 7 of the Penal Code, the Council authorized me to administer you a transfer suspect examination. You can't give me a TSE without a warrant. I got your warrant right here now. Okay, okay, okay. I don't want any trouble. Well, that's my job is hunting transfers. I got nothing to hide. 
finding them, and singeing them. Of course, sometimes they find me first. Then it's a little more complicated. It's a terrible business in a sense. I mean, I love it, but it's a business that, you know, uh, that is, it's an art form, it's a, it's a cutthroat business. It's, you gotta have a, an even mix of talent and cunning and God knows what else to, you know, to survive. Sometimes when you go a little further and, and you take a chance, even within your small, you know, range, you know, you can be very successful because it's something different that people are looking for anyway. He's dead? Not anymore. There are some pictures that I've made that were not initially successful, let's say, theatrically, but have lived on in home video and have become, you know, again, to call a picture a cult classic or a cult film is probably overreaching, but, you know, when a picture that's seven or eight years old still is rented and they reorder it, it has some life of its own. I just enjoy the genre, you know, I, I would, uh, you know, sitting down, having a choice, which we now have with a, if you have a home video, some kind of a library, or the choice of going and renting a tape, you know, we've never had such choice before. In the past, up to not too many years ago, you know, you'd open your paper and there were 15, 18, 20 pictures being played, and that was it, you know, you, you couldn't go and look at 5,000 films on a video shelf and say, I'm in the mood for comedy, and then you look at 400 co comedy selection, and. So with all this choice, you know, more times than not, you wind, I wind up in front of horror, science fiction, fantasy, sometimes comedy. This business you reinvent every 90 days, and that's why it's tough to do a two to three year business plan, because in six months, the business has changed again. But today, you've got a possibility with a picture that costs between, say, one and two million dollars to make a modest profit between worldwide home video and television without the picture having really to go out theatrically. You know, if you ship 25,000, 30,000 units in the U.S. market, you're doing well on what we would, anyone would consider a smaller picture. So between that and, again, your foreign sales, which are really guarantees by other similar distributors, again, there's a business. It's not a get-rich business, uh, at least picture by picture, but if you, if, if you stay in there, you know, hopefully it all works out. We know that there is you know, a finite number of uh, people who enjoy a horror film or a fantasy film and so that helps and I think more than anything else again back to the analogy of making a bad horror film which no one sets out to make but even if it's not so good uh, it's still marketable and also a horror film even cheap horror films that take place in one location a haunted house or whatever are fairly affordable to make as opposed to a big action film or obviously any film that would require you know, major size I love pictures, I love making films, and I really felt that as opposed to being a filmmaker that would eternally have scripts under his hands knocking on doors in Hollywood, which is a tough thing to do, that I would make some low-budget films, make some money, have some sort of resources of my own, and then not have to, you know, beg for the dollars to go out and make pictures. I made a picture called Trancers, which, is, uh, which uh, deals with the exploits of Jack Death, this kind of futuristic cop who comes back to the present day to solve problem that really exists in the future. And that picture worldwide has resurfaced and you know, keeps coming back. There are a lot of pictures like that that uh, I keep playing. They play television, they're on video, and again, they're all pictures that are, you know, by industry standards, tiny budgets. Uh, but I think there's, you know, you can do enough with that budget range that I've been talking about to put enough quality on the screen if you have some talent that 
you know, allows these pictures to live on. It'd be nice just to talk about making horror films, you know, as a creative art form, but it's so immersed in, you know, pre-selling the horror concept in order to get the funding in order to make the movie that they kind of go hand in hand. We really develop everything in-house. Um, with few exceptions, I've developed the concept, title, and artwork for the pictures that I've been involved with. So, therefore, what we really look for are writers who can write um, scripts for projects that we've already conceived, as opposed to what is traditionally done in this business where you have hundreds of submissions every week and you have readers who read a good script and it's much more difficult to find a good script that is attached to a good concept. You know, many times we'll find a screenplay or sometimes we'll find a screenplay that's very well written, but it makes no sense to make that movie. But then at least we have a writer we know can write that kind of a project and then we will look at what we've got in development and then we'll match the concept to, to the writer. What are you going to do to me? I'm going to kiss you. My projects have generally not been very violent. I've not made slasher films. It's never been my thing. Under the fantasy umbrella, you can get away with a lot of mayhem without having to, you know, um, show people being cut up. I mean, if a crazy creature from another dimension comes and squishes you, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's all in, in, under the guise of fantasy and some kind of fun. But if it's a very real guy, you know, who's got a knife and cuts you up and he comes from, uh, you know, a gang. I mean, that to me is there's nothing fun about that. And I'll, I'll let other people make those films. Now, we've made many of our pictures in Italy. The reason why is um, up to recently I owned a studio there when I had uh, a company called Empire. Um, it made a lot of sense to make pictures there three, four years ago because the dollar was very strong. Um, Italy is a great place to make pictures. It's uh, outside of the United States, I think, one of the best places to shoot. The film industry there is very mature. Great, great place to work, great people, great food, great everything. And it made economical sense. Um, of course, things have changed. Not that the country is any less great to shoot in, but the dollar is much weaker. It's no longer what it was three, four years ago. And therefore, with certain exceptions, uh, most of our product will be shot here. Those ex exceptions being films that either require locations that exist over there already, or maybe it's a picture that um, may involve some Italian co-financing because it's a subject matter that appeals to I either Italy or Europe. We have a, a branch there. We have a, a full office in Rome. Uh, and whether it's been through Empire or now separately with the new company, this is, our, I think, our sixth year you know, keeping a, a small staff in Rome. So we're on, we're on the lookout there for co-production deals. We handle our product there. As Europe becomes one in 1992, it will, it will be really our base you know, of operations in Europe. It, it's always more convenient to shoot a picture in your own backyard. The problem with Los Angeles is, you know, you got the greatest craftspeople in the world, the greatest filmmakers, the greatest everything, but it's also the, the highest cost. You know, you'd think that almost in the home of movies you would find the better bargains, but everyone here is very jaded. It's very tough to get a location because people's streets have been shot on 300 times and they want just to see you move, you know, and turn around and leave. And, you know, it's, it's expensive uh, to shoot here. And, uh, it's less expensive elsewhere, but elsewhere involves, you know, a move, a location, and being, you know, not so close to a project that you're spending a lot of money on over, you know, a period of a few short weeks. You really got to start and start doing it at the bottom. I mean, I was involved in the beginning in, you know, hand numbering negative and do, you name it. I mean, I've done every bad job and fun job, you know, and 
you know, once you get a feel for it, if you really are going to be involved in producing film, um, you know, there's no way to do that other than doing it, you know, even if it's for free. You know, and um, I'd advise anyone to get on a set and work for nothing and, and just gain the experience and the connections because, you know, one thing does lead to another if you're in action. Most of the films that we make here, the genre-type things, I, I would never go to see them unless I'd made them myself. I mean, if somebody else had made them, I, I wouldn't look at them, I don't think. You know, a few of them, maybe. As much an entrepreneur as he is an artist, Fred Olin Ray finds survival in the industry more terrifying than the horror films he directs. Nevertheless, he has made a very large name for himself, making very small-budget films without compromising his values. I just don't like teenagers or young people in general. Um, I, I don't have any particular love for them, so most of my leads tend to be more middle 30s and stuff like that. I just don't enjoy working with kids very much. I don't know why. You know, maybe I was a rotten kid myself. It's probably an unpopular position, but I don't really enjoy seeing people having their veins and stuff pulled out of their arms and stuff. Um, I just, you know, I, I've seen a lot of it, so I really feel like I've seen enough. I don't shoot rape scenes. I don't deal in drug abuse. Um, most of my action pictures, the people are fighting over a suitcase full of money because I'm kind of, I'm really sick of seeing people fighting over cocaine or something. So I said, whatever happened to money? You know, I really haven't found out which pro part of the process that I really like. I don't actually seem to enjoy any of it. So there must be something, must be the cumulative effect because I haven't been able to figure out exactly what aspect of this industry I enjoy. Probably getting paid, you know. Uh, we, we run the business because uh, up until uh, a year or so ago, that was the biggest stumbling block. We weren't getting paid. We were making the films and people were ripping us off or stealing from us or, or whatever. So we finally started figuring out dollars and cents wise that we could sell the picture ourselves for less money than a guy with more connections could sell it for. But we didn't have to pay him his commission and we didn't have to take him to court to get our share. So we felt like we would probably make more money in the long run by making lesser deals but getting them directly in-house. And uh, we would see our money quicker. So usually you get on a quarterly report, which is every three months, and it's 45 days after the end of the quarter to get the report. So you're looking at about four and a half months each time just to see if you made any money. Well, here, I make the sale, the money comes in, I give you your film, and uh, into the bank it goes. So I'm more assured of getting my money. It was a very slow start. Um, I actually had to work a regular job during the week and make films on the weekends because I never made any money at them. Um, you know, we never made a dime off movies like Scalps and The Alien Dead and, and Biohazard. I think the turning point was uh, when one company had bought a few territories on Biohazard for more than the picture had cost to make. And they found it out and they said, hey, let's get this guy in here and give him some money. And so I, I was able to get into uh, Transworld and do The Tomb which at that time was my biggest budget ever. I think it was about $180,000. And I made maybe five, six million dollars for them. It was like a, a 30 to 40,000 video unit mover. And so it sort of became, uh, in distribution circles, uh, the tomb, while the picture is not considered to be a classic, it's considered to be a classic of video distribution. And that, um, that directly led to some bigger pictures. And once I had the bigger pictures, where we were making a million and a half to two and a half million dollar films like Deep Space and Armed Response, uh, at that point I could then go back on my own and say, I want this amount of money, I'll make a little picture, but I want everything my way and, and get it. And so that's kind of what we do now. 
we still go out and do the bigger budget films, but um, we also do films that are just for our own personal satisfaction, just to be the boss, you know. When you direct a film, you have to really stop everything. Like next week, I mean, this place is dead. There's no one to answer the phones. Um, I can't meet with anybody. I can't do any kind of business, you know. And if you're going to direct and produce, uh, you have to be able to sort of shut down your whole operation. Our operation is, works on sort of a whim here, and we just kind of do what we want as we want. And the time schedule basically works around us. There used to be a myth that you couldn't put anything down on film for less than $150,000. I think there are people out there disproving that every day. You know, when people say, oh, yeah, I made it. I saw it in the trades today. Made on the shoestring of $400,000. Well, if that's a shoestring, I guess we're making pictures on the wrapper that the shoestring comes in. Because um, in-house here, we're doing things for a lot less than that. I think there's a myth that keeps kids back. Kids think they can't do anything unless they can raise $150,000, $200,000. And that's not true. You can make a picture for just about anything you can come up with, you know, money-wise. And especially if you're a beginner, you get a lot more breaks and, uh, you know, you can get crews deferred. And if you're out in a rural area somewhere, you can get actors from little theaters and stuff who will defer their pay. And it's like wrestling. I think you have to learn to fall from a great height and not hurt yourself too badly. Um, if anything, I think it's learning the business in, which is most filmmakers don't want to do that. They want to make their films, they want to hand it over, and they want to get their money. Well, it doesn't work like that. I think uh, our survival tactics here have been to learn the business, learn the contracts, be on the lookout for people who want to do you harm, and try to avoid them or try to prevent them from doing you harm so that the pictures that we do make are profitable to us because we're not in a position to rip anybody off. They're our own films. It's very hard to rip yourself off. And uh, those films that are financed from outside, uh, it's worth it to us not to rip them off so that we can continue to seek financing from those people. If they don't make any money, they're certainly not going to give us any more. A lot of films nowadays aren't really released theatrically and that's what they go straight to video and that's when it's really hard to figure out what people like because you can't go home with them you can't stand in the video store you don't you don't really know what they're no. thinking video is kind of like the old drive-in days where the it's like you know buyer beware you know you look at the box cover it's kind of like the great ad that used to be in the friday paper and you go to the theater and you know god help you you don't know what the hell you're going to see and uh, that's kind of what video is. It's kind of like, because there are a lot of titles you've never heard of before. No advanced hype or anything. You just kind of take your chances. It's very hard to say because some people love films that other people despise. And, you know, I'm the same way. You know, I, my girlfriends used to say, you know, why do you watch so many awful movies when there's so many good ones out there you've never seen? I'm just, I'd, I'm just looking to be entertained. I figured you'd try something like this. I would rather watch something other than, you know, terms of endearment, which I've never seen, don't ever intend to see, 
you know, I'd probably, I don't think I'd watch Bloodthirsty Butchers instead, but uh, you know what I mean? Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, probably over in terms of endearment. Thank you.